but that's what the reality of my life was at that point. It's like sometimes it was so painful that all I could do was crawl out of bed, crawl into the bathtub, fill it with water, and like just try to make it through the day, right? And there were times at which that I had no desire to eat, so I would be at a at the table with my whole family and everybody's eating, and I just I'm just sitting there with an empty plate because I don't want to eat, but I want to be with my family. Right. Authentic on Air with Bruce Alexander, and I am your host, Bruce Alexander. My guest today is Robert Ruiz, a dedicated community builder and education programmer. More about Robert after today's reflection. How does balance affect your identity? ADHD is my superpower, kind of. With the ability to deep dive, hyper-focus, learn practically anything, and work for hours and hours on end, I am the perfect project developer. However, I play more than one role. I am a husband, a father, a friend, as well as many other things. If I don't set boundaries and allow myself to be held accountable by others, I can become so consumed by one role that I completely ignore all the others. It hurts to hear my spouse tell me that I haven't been a good father as of late, but what is much more damaging is continuing in destructive behaviors because I didn't have the self-awareness to listen to my best friend and partner when she tells me I'm messing up. How do you face your life's responsibilities? Are you preemptive with firm boundaries? Are you overburdened with people-pleasing? Are you evaluative with trial and error and open communication? There isn't a wrong answer, as long as you are aware of your weaknesses and being honest with yourself about their implications. In full disclosure, as I sat at my computer writing for this episode, I had an argument with my wife because she didn't feel like I was pulling my weight. This is really hard criticism for me. I am not emotionally intuitive in intimate relationships. Feelings cloud things for me pretty severely and the emotional accuracy I'm able to apply to outside situations completely abandons me. In a conversation about emotion, I ask for ones and zeros, fully aware that that is not fair. Emotional math and logic do not compute. So now I have to spend the rest of my day trying to convert our emotions into some sort of practical thought model so I can figure out how to move forward, chasing my passion and fulfilling what is necessary as a member of my family unit. It is important for me to share this because I want my audience to know that I am always being authentic. It is not a game to me. This podcast is a space I've created for vulnerability and honesty, and I can't ever facilitate that space if I'm hiding from the truth. If people tune out or tune in because of it, it doesn't really matter, because the space will remain safe for just that. However, I do believe people appreciate honesty, and even when it's not pretty, appreciate being told the truth. I hope that I'm right, and if it's not, I'll keep on doing it anyways, at least until I can't afford to do it anymore. Now that that's done, you guys know how to find me on socials if you want to chat more about that topic. I know I generally intro my guests with lots of complimentary words and touching stories about how they have affected me. Unfortunately, my endless well of close colleagues and friends couldn't last forever. At some point, I was always going to have to start interviewing people I don't really have personal relationships with. Although we do not have deep history together, I have networked in the same circles as Robert before and have att even attended a small group lunch with them. From our brief exchanges, I did glean a few mental snapshots to call upon. Powerful, dynamic, gregarious, persuasive. In reading his bio, I know that these particular traits are backed up by evidence. 
As a CTO of OCCC, Robert oversees innovative, impactful programming for over 18,000 students, changing the OKC educational landscape. Powerful. As the president of Scissortail Community Development Corporation, he brought a diverse range of experiences into creating better outcomes for the most underserved populations of Oklahoma. Dynamic. His engagement skills have helped in establishing some of the largest community events in Oklahoma, the Norman Music Festival, Fiestas Patreas, OKC, OKC Cinco de Mayo, and the Anita Martinez Mariachi Festival, Gregarious. He also led the campaign to establish a permanent Mexican consulate in Oklahoma, a move that I personally know was very important to a lot of OKC's Latin population. Persuasive. All of that and we have just scratched the surface of this passionate mariachi musician and stage four cancer survivor. I'm so curious to learn more about Robert Ruiz, and I'm very glad he is here today. Welcome to the show, Robert. I appreciate it. <laughs> so if you wouldn't mind, in your own words, can you tell your list, my listeners who aren't familiar with you uh, who you are, what you spend your days doing, and why you think I invited you to be on the show today? Well, first and foremost, I'm a I'm a father uh, and a husband, and uh, you know, father for four uh, children. They're not quite children anymore. They're they're all adults now. Actually, my youngest just turned 18 this last uh, summer, um, and uh, you know, a member of the Hispanic community. Um, I'm a transplant from San Antonio, so I bring some of those experiences and backgrounds to Oklahoma. But uh, Oklahoma is my home now. I mean, I've lived here for for quite quite a long time. I think um 16 no 26 years and so uh so yeah oklahoma is my home um you know i want to give back as much as possible um surviving cancer gave me a lot of perspective and especially with what i want to do with my life and more than anything i want to have impact and so that drives a lot of the work that i do and when you say you want to have impact what is what exactly does that mean to you for me it means that something i do is going to make somebody's life better and that looks different in many different situations, whether it's bringing happiness to people by playing music that reminds them of home, uh, whether that means, you know, having them remember a loved one because I might play one of their favorite songs. And then on the complete other side, you know, really changing somebody's life through access to education and to opportunities that they might not have otherwise had bringing families closer together because they're able to have an experience, a shared experience that they wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, there are children in this community that have never known a year where they haven't had Hispanic festivals accessible to them because of the work that I've done. And so that means a lot to me. And um, whether people know that I founded those festivals or, or behind those, that really doesn't matter to me. What really matters to me is that those things continue and that families are are able to continue having those experiences. Uh, for the students that either I've taught directly or that have gone through programs that I've designed or that their work is facilitated through me doing boring infrastructure work, you know, something nobody may ever see. Uh, if, if through that work I've, I've, I've helped somebody gain a college credit or a degree or a career uh, then, then th that is all meaningful impact for me. Absolutely. Um, what was your childhood like? Did you have access to those types of things? You know, I was very fortunate. You know, I was born in probably one of the poorest areas of San Antonio. Um, my parents on and off lived with their own parents and, and 
uh, mobile home parks and things like that at the very beginning of our family. My dad was an, uh, became an auto, auto mechanic. You know, he had jumped around between working at Church's Chicken and were then working on the railroad in Kansas and, you know, a varied history. And then finally got into working on cars, which was his passion. Grew there, you know, uh, eventually became a certified technician and then eventually a master tech. And through hard work, uh, my, my mom, my mother also worked as a unit secretary at the hospital in the intensive care unit of our, of our children's hospital. And she worked there for her whole career. I mean, working in an intensive care unit can be very challenging and difficult, but I think she also felt like she was playing a role there in saving the lives of children, you know, uh, helping families. And, uh, she stayed there her whole career. Uh, I can't even imagine nowadays thinking about, you know, somebody being in one job, uh, with one organization, you know, their whole, their yeah. whole life. Um, but they both worked really hard to, to get us into, nicer neighborhoods and then eventually nicer schools. And so I had access to educational opportunities. Yeah. And, and in some sense, um, I was lucky that, that I didn't have, it didn't feel like I had to work as hard. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, um, so a lot of things came natural to me and in some ways that was a blessing. In some ways it also was challenging because, uh, I learned as adult that, you can't just make it in life based on your intelligence or, or your talent or those sorts of things. I mean, you know, over 90% of what's going to make you successful in life is your ability to work hard, you know? And so I had to learn that a lot as an adult, uh, especially with the challenges that we had, because I faced many more challenges as an adult than I did as a child. I mean, I, I feel like, like I had a very blessed childhood. You know, I had two parents in the household. Um, you know, we, we had a, a pretty good upbringing. It was strict, but um, but I think me and my two older brothers, we, we all turned out really, really well. And then uh, coming to Oklahoma, you know, I came on a full ride scholarship, academic scholarship to OU. And it was kind of this perfect situation, probably for about two years. And then kind of, it all kind of got flipped, you know, on its head. And, uh, and so that led to many, many challenging years. And, um, and so, but, but for my, as far as my childhood went, I think it was pretty blessed. Yeah. You know. Um, can you tell me in your own words, what authenticity means to you? Well, I use the word a lot, especially, especially when we're talking about, um, some of the community events. Um, and I think I want to, emphasize that community events are they're not just parties or celebrations for me they they play an extremely important role um for our communities in general however the reason why i use the word authenticity a lot in association with them is that as i built the fiestas patrias festival as i built the cinco de mayo festival there are a lot of pressures to make these things into something um, that is not authentic. And so for me, it was very important that these festivals um, really serve the purpose of bringing families together, of making sure that children that are growing up here in Oklahoma, of parents who didn't grow up here, 
are able to have some of those shared experience experiences in an authentic way. Mm. And that means that their culture is being uh, presented in an authentic way. It means that those histories are being presented in an authentic way. Um, and, you know, in the ceremonies are authentic. And so that means that, that they're not somehow changed uh, to fit somebody else's idea of what these things should be. And so for me, when I talk about these kinds of experiences, that, that's where I use the word authentic is because we also had to build a critical mass, right? So I would often get criticized. I was like, Robert, well, you don't do enough to reach out to the mainstream community or the non-Hispanic community or these sorts of things, especially in the beginning of the festivals. Um, but I knew that start the festival starting out really had to um, build a critical mass of history and trajectory to, uh, to make sure that those those events were going to be able to maintain authenticity, mm. um, that they weren't going to be able to be taken over by some other agenda or, some, or something else. You know, uh, I see other Hispanic events in the community that are really catered to to uh, really catered to non-Hispanic audiences, you know, and that's fine. We need those as well. But for me, it was always about maintaining that authenticity, growing to a critical mass where those are going to be able to keep that authenticity and then invite the community, in, the broader community. in. Because now that actually benefits everybody, because the people that are coming in from outside of this bank community are able to trust that what they're seeing is an authentic representation of that culture. And so so in that sense. Uh, that's a lot of the word. What I, the, the reason why I use that word authenticity is in in, in relation to that word. You know. Yeah, I'm, I, it's interesting because I hadn't even thought of that that tie into how I view authenticity about you know about being genuine in yourself. Thinking about an event like that, I could see how authenticity would be very important both to the people that it's you know it's supposed to the end user and to you yourself trying to put it on. And so I think that, you know, that brings up a few new questions. Um, first, how hard is it for you to be so focused on making this, you know, whatever event it is, authentic, and also be authentic yourself? Because that's a, that's a whole different battle whenever you're trying to do things to, you know, I've, I've set up events before, like I understand how you have to rub elbows and talk to the right people. And sometimes an opportunity comes to sacrifice yourself to get the thing that's going to be right for the event. Is that something you've ever struggled with? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I've lost relationships because of it. You know, um, you know, one thing about me being myself and being authentic is, is my sense of loyalty. So, you know, I remember an instance where I had a pretty powerful uh, sponsor, supporter, um, that wanted me to, um, to get rid of one of uh, my long-term, uh, providers and, or, and co-organizers of the festival. And, uh, uh, you know, there was obviously an agenda there. I mean, you know, so for me, I'm a loyal person and I wasn't willing to sacrifice my relationship with the person who really was you know, not advocating for change and not trying to force me to do something with a more powerful entity that was, that was really 
uh, want to kind of push me to make a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that was part of me being authentic and being true to loyalty, you know, true to my value of loyalty uh, that cost me a relationship, mm-hmm. you know, and that was hard because uh, I truly value the people that were in the organization, you know, um, and and so th- those things are difficult. And and many times I've been put in that position where. So what, which one did you choose? Which uh, path did you take on that? I think I'm to be loyal. To be loyal. Okay. And so uh, you lost the bigger sponsor, mm-hmm. had, you know, a, a chance to help increase the reach of your event. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's definitely a hard decision to make. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it wasn't a hard decision to make, but it was a difficult, it was a challenging situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's always been easy for me to stick to my values and principles just because at the end of the day, that's all, that's all I have. And that's, you know, uh, there are always going to be things that are, that happen to me that are out of my control. But I always feel like if I'm sticking true to, uh, to who I am authentically, then I, I always have that to fall back on. So regardless of, of the challenges that are happening, regardless to the turmoil, um, regardless to the things that happen to me that are out of my control, as long as I'm doing those things, then, um, then I, I can be happy and fulfilled regardless of what's going on. Uh, staying kind of along the line of authenticity, something I'm, I'm having this like really ever long struggle with is, um, appropriation. So, you know, me being part of a minority culture, I've also, I've been both been outside of that culture, not accepted by that culture, still respect that culture and, you know, and believe in the growth that is going on there. Um, but I'm also part of like overall American culture. Like I'm pretty entrenched in that as well. I was raised around white people. Like that become, that became my normal for a very long time. Um, so whenever it comes to somebody saying that something's appropriation, I often get stuck because, you know, having been on both sides, it's, it's hard for me to say, you know, you talking about keeping your event authentic. I feel like there's something that exists that's not, and that it's, that is to kind of serve that appropriate, that appropriative uh, audience. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. You know, I'm conflicted about this one. Um, because generally I do believe that people, people are free to do whatever they want to do. You know, um, if somebody respects a tradition or, um, a type of food so much that they want to be able to offer their version of that to the world, I generally think that that's okay. And I know that I realize that sometimes they may miss the mark. Mm-hmm. It may not be authentic. Um, and there are some who don't come from the culture and tradition, but, but have studied and respected and deliver something that is truly authentic, uh, and maybe even add something to it. And so in general, I'm, I'm not, I'm not on the side of, of telling somebody that they can't do something. Um, but at the same time, I think we are all able to make our choices of what we support. And so, um, if somebody isn't being authentic or, or, you know, if, if we have our own beliefs that, well, we should only support those that, that come from that culture or come from that, that background that do these things, then those are choices we can make. Right. Yeah. And so I, I really think it's, it's just up to the individuals and, the, and, and those choices. Um, 
there there are some times where I've seen things and and people have have done things that, um, like I said, truly missed the mark and and so it uh, it has, you know, made me feel feel conflict, conflicted whether they should have ever done it in the first place. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, I just remind myself that, that that that's their right to do that. You know, um, I do believe that uh, that culture belongs to every every human. I think that just as celebrating one's own culture doesn't take away from anybody else. I also believe that it's a good thing for people to uh, celebrate and enjoy other people's culture. And so, you know, in that, in that sense, I, I really, you know, do like that people want to embrace other people's cultures. Um, I know that sometimes can, people can feel conflicted about that, whether somebody's profiting from somebody else's culture or, or, or that sort of thing. And, you know, I don't know. Uh, like I said, for me, I think that's okay. I think that uh, all cultures have something that, are, that is positive from it. If somebody wants to borrow or be inspired from those cultures, then I think that that's a great thing. Um, I guess the, the one thing that comes to mind that I can think of is I watched this cooking show with my daughter. And correct me if I'm saying this wrong, I believe it's Conchitas de Pabil. Mm -hmm. Is that so? Plus, uh, yeah, it's Cochinita. Uh, Cochinita de Pabil. Okay, yeah. yeah. And the just the traditional dish was made in a specific city in Mexico. Puebla. Yeah. yeah, and there was a you know a specific corn that is like not it's not really accessible everywhere. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And I hear about this guy who's you know who's making it in America. It's a white dude, and I'm you know kind of conflicted. But then it goes into the story of how he traveled down to like this family that's been making it for fifty years stays with them for a time, learns the process, respects the part the process, sources the corn, helped provide them with some items that helped the, make their process. I think it was like a, a, a corn mill and like a tortilla press and like, you know, some things that were like a little more advanced mm -hmm. to help them be able to scale their stuff up some more. Mm -hmm. And I think actually he ended up bringing the daughter who was in the show at the side at the time to come work for him in America to, you know, help keep that legitimacy. Like, in a situation like that, I can't fault that at all. Yeah. Like he respected the product completely from beginning to end. He respected the people who had created it, got permission, you know, and then carried on all the way through having somebody there with him to, you know, really help amplify the voice of the culture and of the dish, you know, something that is beautiful and delicious and people should know about. But there are still people who would say like that doesn't belong to you. And I and yeah, I'm I can't get mad at somebody who is much more connected to that culture than I am saying that that feels bad to them. It's just, you know, it's like I said, it's kind of, it's confusing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would definitely wouldn't fault them. I mean, that, it, that goes back to the, the example I was giving earlier. Um, but if, if somebody truly respects and, and, and pays homage to um, where those, those traditions come from, then in actuality, they're offering more people access to that Yeah, because who knows, there may not be somebody in that community that can do that, you know? And, and of course there may be people in that community where he's at that don't have the ability to travel down to Puebla, Mexico to have that experience. And so to be able to bring that and, and, and to be able to, to, to let people know that the, where it's from and, and, you know, where it's sourced. And it sounds like he's doing all of these things in, a, in the right way uh, to pay homage to where that, where that tradition comes from while giving people access to it. I think that access part is, you know, the, the intention and the access are 
do things that if, if they're there, I think I'm going to just stop listening to the noise and just accept that person for, you know, having the right intention and going forward and trying to bring attention to something important. Um, you've sat on a lot of boards. Like, you've done, you've done a lot. What, and you've also held a lot of titles. Of all of the titles and the boards and positions you've played in your different roles in life, what position best aligns with your identity as you sit here today? Father and husband, like, no doubt. I mean, uh, if we're talking about purely, purely in a professional standpoint, community developer, I think, uh, uh, resonates the most with me. Uh, I still feel even in my current role as, as CTIO, I, I'm still doing community development work. I'm still doing workforce development, economic development. Um, but more than anything, it's being a father and a husband, you know, there's nothing that's going to play a, 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 a longer term impact on my own happiness than that title. Um, the fact that my wife, you know, very early on joined me in playing music was, was very special. And then after many, many years, our children starting to actually join us playing music too. Was, I, I, the first time my oldest daughter played violin with us in our mariachi, um, when, when she finally got to the age that she was, you know, could hold her own weight. Um, that was very important to me that she couldn't join the mariachi until she could hold her own weight. Uh, that was magical. Like it's hard, it's hard to describe what it is to then be able to make music with your children when they get to that point. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of members of the mariachi and they've all, we spend so much time with them. I mean, I don't think people even realize, you know, cause I rarely ever publicate, you know, publicated or talk about it a lot is that we do like 160 plus performances a year. So, I mean, we, we average over three performances a weekend, you know? And so we're, we're with the members of the Mariachi so much that they do feel like extended members of the family. Mm -hmm. uh, they feel like family in and of themselves. But that first time that my daughter joined us was, was something really special. And then my second daughter joined us. Then my son joined in helping with, you know, sound equipment and things like that. And then my youngest daughter joined us. And so it's really now like a, a family affair, you know, and um, there's really nothing else to compare with that. And, you know, more than anything, we've been trying to do some recording also. So there's some, some physical proof, some documentation of, of this work. Um, you know, I want to have more documentation of, of, of my music as well, because I think about my, future grandchildren and, you know, maybe great grandchildren and, and that they have something uh, of me. They know something of me from that experience. And then my, my children can say that, yeah, we, you know, we played with grandpa and we made this together. And, you know, it's just something really special. I mean, beyond the obvious, like, you know, it, the, the reward of, of continuing on a cultural tradition is very important to me. But to be able to do that with my family, I mean, that's that's something indescribable. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. Yeah, I'm pretty jealous actually. <laughs> I, I also have four kids. They're oh, still nice. they're still kids though. So. Yeah. Um, I was gonna ask more about mariachi later, but we're already on the topic. So, can you talk more about for those who don't know what it is, what mariachi is, and 
what it's meant to your life. So first, let me go back to the theme of authenticity, because this is one of those places that it could be really easy for me to say, okay, as my professional career has grown, as I've been become, you know, uh, owner, CEO of companies, president of nonprofits, executive in, in higher ed, you know, what, I mean, what are you doing still going out there on the weekends and, and playing pickup gigs or whatever, you know? Um, but it's so much a part of who I am that it's not something I would let go just so I could, uh, you know, not, you know, open myself up to judgment from other people. Right. You know? Um, and so I try to own it as much as possible. And that, I think that helps actually reduce the criticism mm -hmm. because if I'm not ashamed of it, if I'm not uh, embarrassed of it, um, if I, it, it, I am very, very proud of it and I embrace it, um, the people, people get picked up on that. So they're a lot less likely to criticize and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think I've also had the criticism of being a jack of many trades, you know, I think people used to, you know, I think maybe still, but people used to use that as a derogatory statement, mm -hmm. right? Jack of many trades is like master of none. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's kind of like this, oh, you're too scatterbrained and you're working on too many things and you can't get good at any one thing. And so I tried as much as possible to, to prove that wrong. Um, but then I was really comforted when I finally found, I think it was last year, uh, the rest of that phrase. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to go there. Yeah, because it's only part of the story, right? And so the full thing is, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Yep. You know, yep. that's powerful. You know, so I think it also talks about our highly specialized society, mm -hmm. right? Everybody wants to specialize in one thing, wants to be put into one peg and just be the best at that one thing that they can be. But then they don't have these other experiences and, and, and sometimes other perspectives. And I feel oftentimes that innovation and creativity comes from these, this diverse range of experiences that you can bring to the table. Absolutely agree. You know, and being an artist and a musician for me is one of those. Um, and so, so that means a lot to me. Um, mariachi music is just, just for some nuts and bolts. Mariachi is the folkloric music, uh, of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of folk traditions. I mean, it's, it's, it's steeped in history. Um, you know, it, it is very highly representative of a culture and a country. And mariachi music in particular is one of the great patrimony arts of, of, uh, of Mexico. And I use patrimony in the sense of, of país, of, of, uh, patriotic, you know? Okay. Um, and so, uh, one unique thing about mariachi music is that it's still highly relevant. So when you look at other folk traditions in many other countries, including our own, you know, it's kind of relegated to a genre, a kind of a specialized genre that, that people are like, oh, you know, I like folk, you know, folk Americana and things like that. No, I mean, top 40 music on the radio right now is mariachi music, you know. So amongst other genres, banda and norteña, but mariachi is still highly relevant. And so that's one really cool thing because when when then you start talking about, okay, how do we keep the tradition going and how do we 
get youth excited about it. Well, it's not that hard because the youth are already listening to it on the radio. You know, what do you think that says about your culture versus like traditional American culture that mariachi isn't it's a top 40 thing. It's something that is like I, I hear it being, you know, blasted on radios. And I was at the doctor today and I heard they're listening to mariachi music on the um, you know little radio behind the, the stand. That's that's pretty uncommon as far as, you know, folk music goes. Absolutely. And, you know, it still evolves. I mean, the Mariachi music that's on the radio today, um, you know, is not is not the same as the traditional sones of, from Jalisco uh, at the turn of the 18th and 19th century, you know. Um, but the ensemble is still there. So that ensemble being able to make a living doing this work and playing popular music is the same ensemble that's keeping those older traditions alive. You know, so it goes back to those shared experiences. So for me, like um, when you look at, at American culture and you see pop music can, constantly evolving, right, which is a great thing, right, because you want things to evolve. But what your children are listening to are just a completely different point you grew up with, mm-hmm. right? right? And so there's a disconnect that happens there. And so imagine when uh, a family from Mexico comes to the U.S. and their children are growing up with a different culture, different language, and there's this huge gap. It's not just the music they listen to, right? It's language, it's values, it's culture. Um, that can be very dangerous for a family. But now if that, if that child still has access to those traditions, to the culture, to the music, and they enjoy listening to the same kinds of bands that their parents grew up with, there are more chances to connect, to stay connected. And so right. would, would you say that's part of the strength of the Latin family unit is the, is the adherence to tradition and the focus on history? Yeah, I, I think it happens more organic than, than something intentional, mm-hmm. right? I think, I think it's fortunate that, um, that kids still grow up liking this. So they're not, they're not being forced to, to adhere or to, or to listen to it's something they do voluntarily. And I think that's, that's a huge blessing, you know, in and of itself. And so, uh, so they're able to stay connected in a way that they, they enjoy. And then at, at some point for the children, when they start getting older, it'll become a sense of pride. And even for Latinos who many times grew up in a different culture at some point in their young adulthood, I have seen it happen over and over again. They will then at that point, try to reach back and rediscover culture. Um, you know, I saw that a lot with the with the Latinos in, in college with me that were out of the home for the first time. So maybe for a lot of them growing up with some of these things wasn't cool. But then as when they got away from home, they were looking for reminders of that. And so they kind of reach back for those things. And that's I think that's an interesting phenomenon. And and so a lot of that is is you know around the just kind of the struggles around identity. I feel like the Latino community has a lot of struggles with identity because different from a lot of different other cultures. I mean, we're, you know, we're an ethnicity, not a race, right? So Latinos look completely different, you know, from each other. Um, and you have all, all the races that are present. Um, but what ties us together with those is that history, those traditions and, and those sorts of things. And so language, you know, um, uh, 
not necessarily having to speak Spanish, but some of that language vocabulary, you know, that shared vocabulary persists. And so, uh, so that, that helps us keep tied together and to, and to either build community or find community. Right. But then at the same time, we struggle. I mean, you know, I've had discussions within groups of Latinos that we struggle with our own histories and the fact that we're all so mixed that, you know, when you trace it back, I mean, some of us, you know, grow, you know, mostly most of us have different mixes of blood, right? So it's like, okay, we had indigenous blood and you have European blood and, and what does that mean? And is there internal conflicts within people? And, you know, cause you don't know how to feel about history. You know? <laughs> uh, so there's a lots, lots of struggles around that. Um, but sometimes it's that, that identity struggle that actually helps us feel more identified with each other. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. The, the collective disconnect with, you know, something solid. Yeah. Uh, I think that that can bring the entire world together because everybody yeah. feels that way at some point. Yeah. And like what Selena's dad infamously says, like, uh, you know, for, especially for Mexican Americans, he said it's hard being Mexican American because you have to be more Mexican than the Mexicans. And more American than America than Americans, you know, and you never feel like you truly belong. And so it's it's an interesting place for sure. Do you do you think that's still pretty accurate? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think so. I think that for me, um, imposter syndrome is real. That's my next question. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's some it's sometimes being the only person in spaces that's like me. Mm -hmm. Um and so feeling like, do I really belong here or not? Um, and I get over it pretty quickly. I just say whatever I, I feel like saying anyways, but, uh, but I do have, I do have glancing moments of that, of those kinds of things. And I've become much more comfortable because, you know, I've been, like you were saying earlier, ser serving on boards. I was one of the youngest board members at, at the Mary Abbott Children's House when I started there. I would think I was, I'd have been 21 or 22 at the time, maybe. Um, and, I, and for a long time, I was the youngest board member on whatever board I was on. Um, but I've been serving on boards for a long time. And and partly I understand that the reason why I started on board so young um, was because of, of who I represented. You know? Yeah. Um, and then eventually it became more about not so much who I represented, but because of the judgment and the experience and the perspective that I brought to the table. Um, where maybe at first I didn't, I wasn't, I really felt like a fish out of water, but then, um, then really felt like I could truly contribute to whatever, whatever organization I was volunteering with at the time. Um, so yeah, that, that's been really interesting. Yeah, um, thinking about what you said about imposter syndrome, you spend a lot of time in front of lots of different kinds of groups of people. What are some of like what are the thoughts that you struggle with as you're going to talk in front of um, the entire student population or you're going to um, the I remember you talked at a oh, the Hispanic Association and you know I, I don't feel any of that so that good job at covering it but what are some of those thoughts that cross your mind before during and after you have to speak to a group of people hmm. I think I think the imposter syndrome doesn't set in unless I'm I'm kind of just sitting in a space. Mm -hmm. I feel like when I'm going to go speak to somebody, I feel like I've had a pretty good ability to be able to connect with people. And so 
that's kind of my first priority is like, how do, how do I connect? How do I find something in common? Um, you know, I'm used to being a performer. So being in front of hundreds or thousands of people is not a new thing for me. Um, of course, speaking is a little bit different from singing and performing, right? I have more of a comfort level in singing and performing than I do speaking. But at the same time, uh, it's not something I'm ner- necessarily nervous about, but it's something that I do know and I do have a desire to be better at. Mm-hmm. I often look at people who, who speak on a regular basis. I'm, I'm often really inspired about uh, many of the African-American pastors uh, and leaders that I've talked to because uh, because there's an, there's an eloquence there that is just so beautiful to listen to that I wish I had when I was speaking to people. And I wish I had the ability to communicate the way other people communicate. I think growing up Latino, there was almost an expectation that, well, you're not going to be as good at the verbal arts as everybody else, right? And it was true for me. I mean, you know, the only reason I, I got a National Scholar designation uh, was because of my math scores on my PSAT, you know, um, because my verbal wasn't as high. Uh, so even though, you know, I considered myself a very intelligent kid and uh, excelled at academics, um, I still knew that I was lagging on the language aspect of it. And so that's always been a challenge for me that I felt like I needed to overcome. I've been getting better at it, um, but definitely something I still want to improve on. Um, but when I'm in those spaces, it's really just about connecting. So uh, almost like I'm, I'm a performer at, in that moment. And uh, so, I, so the imposter syndrome doesn't sink in as much when I'm in that situation as when I'm as when I'm sitting down as a part of a group and just looking around and reflecting and thinking to myself, you know, sure. it's when I have a moment to think about it that I start, you know, sometimes feeling like. Oh. So the silence is where it gets you. Yeah. <laughs> Do I belong here? You know, is, is my perspective really needed here? Am I valued here? Um, those some of those questions come in and I'm, you know, and, and I'm, I, you know, I'm insecure. Right. And so. Uh, so I'm always wondering what other people are thinking, you know, uh, you know, or reacting to what I say, because I'm also empathetic, right? I care about what other people are thinking and feeling. And, and, you know, I really try to be careful about, uh, not stepping on other people, uh, you know, when I speak and, um, but then I have this other conflict of like, of this value of, of saying what I believe, Mm. right? Uh, so then, I will give my opinion. I'll be pretty strong about giving my opinion. But I understand that when we're in these group discussions, there's a value also to having robust discussions, even if they're uncomfortable. Absolutely. And so I, I since I value that, I'm okay playing that role. But then I understand that, especially if I'm a part of a board or if I'm a part of a leadership team, that once we make a decision and once we leave that room, that we're all on the same page, right? That I don't have any power as an individual outside that room or I have power is as a group inside that room. And I think that's important for people to understand, especially as they enter into public service or as they enter into uh, some of these volunteer opp- leadership opportunities, that it, it can't be about them, that it has to be about the institutions that they serve. And that, and to understand their role in those when they're in those situations, and then then to understand as much as they 
they can have those robust conversations and bring their perspective at the end of the day when the decision is made by the group that they need to be able to take that forward. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and if they if they can't do that, they might might not be the best, you know, person for that role. Yeah. You know, and so um, I think that's something also important for us to learn as as leaders um, uh, is how to best serve the institutions that we're at as well. And that kind of you know brings up a question we've talked about before on the show, and that's how much of yourself are you willing to sacrifice for either the greater good or for your own dreams and ambitions? Sometimes you have to you know whittle a little bit of yourself away to fit into the thing into your your dream job or something that you feel like will serve your your purpose better than what you're currently doing. How do you? Do you feel like that's an authentic thing to do? Well, first of all, I don't, I don't think it's always necessary. Um, I think that you always have a choice about oh, yeah. you, how you, you move forward. Yeah, for sure. And, but, I, but I also believe that if, if it isn't the, great, the greatest or best place for you to be authentically, that there are ways of moving out of those spaces without kind of like blowing things up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's important too, because Oklahoma City is not a big enough place to to burn bridges or yeah, to blow things up, right? And so, um, so it's important that as you're making decisions for yourself, that you're also being, ex- you know, extremely sensitive to um, to the needs of others and to your relationship with others, right? That just because you're not in the right space doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice a relationship for that, right? Um, there are sometimes when when people test your relationships, and sometimes you do have to sacrifice those relationships. But it's more it's more to keep true to the, your values. Now, as far as whittling yourself down to being in a position, um, I don't know. You know, sometimes there are compromises made. Um, like I said, especially when you're in those group situations. Um, as long as you said what you needed to say and leave it all out on the table and respect the process and, and the governance structures, then I think you're okay. You're not, you're not whittling, you're not whittling yourself down because you put it out there. When you're whittling yourself down is when you have objections to things, but you stay silent. Mm. When you see things that you don't agree with and you don't make it known and you don't explain yourself well. Because ultimately, it's also our responsibility if we f- have feelings and if we have opinions, that we do a good enough job of explaining those things. Because if we don't do a good enough job of making our case, then maybe we're wrong. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to admit that we could be wrong. Yeah. Right. And so that's why I think, it, like I said, it's really important that that whatever the decision made in those group situations, if you understand your role and and what's needed to move forward. And you can do so without sacrificing yourself. Now, if you're truly making, uh, you know, uh, if you're truly compromising your principles or values, I think that's not a healthy place to be in, mm-hmm. regardless of where it puts you. I, I guess what I've learned through my experiences is that there's a difference between sacrificing yourself and letting situations and experiences shape you into a better version or a more rounded version or whatever sometimes it is like for the example you gave speaking out in the you know in the correct way 
versus being the person who like always says directly what comes to your mind as soon as it does. That's not how you really operate in in most group settings, especially not in something as uh, professional as a board. You don't get to just talk whenever and say whatever you want. It's not always time for that. And that's something that, you know, that specific example is something that I had to learn through my you know professional career is that sometimes it's just not your time to talk. And initially that felt like I was, you know, being shut down and I was, I wasn't respected. I wasn't valued. There may have been some truth to that, but I also wasn't respecting the process. You know, I, I homeschool my kids, but I, I tell them you're, there are going to be times in your life where you're not going to be sitting at the kitchen table. Like we learn, you're going to have to, you know, if you go take your SATs, you're going to have to go to a room where you have to stay silent and you have to follow the rules in order to get that next step in order to enter college. So is that the way that we always act? No, I encourage them to move around, do whatever they need to be able to, you know, pay attention, get the energy out, whatever. But that's not always going to be the case. And you have to respect the systems that you are, that you're interacting with and work within their rules in order to be able to be effective and get the things that you need from them. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned processes for me. That's a big that's a high belief of mine is that I can often trust processes more than I can trust myself. Mm. And because I also have to be humble enough to know that I don't always have the answer, but I know that if I can follow a process or if we can follow a process that we all agree on, then regardless of the outcome of that, of that process, that we're going to be in a better place because we followed it. Right. You know, rather than try to force some sort of agenda or anything like that. You know, I do, I did a lot of community organizing work. And one of the really empowering things for me about community organizing work is that I didn't have the have to have the answers. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I, I was empowered to set my agenda or any or beliefs or ideas aside. Because at that point, and being a community organizer, kind of like a coach, you know, somebody walking along community members and their journey, it was about their journey of discovery. It's about their development of leadership and their ability to make decisions and exercise their own power. So then I, then I had to let go. I got, you know, I, I'm often in positions where I'm looked to, to be the person that has the answers or that, that has the judgment to make decisions. And so that process was exciting for me because I didn't have to play that role in that situation. I could let go and, it was really wonderful because, especially as we worked with people that were very close to the issues that they were working on, they had so many, you know, amazing ideas. And it didn't it, it didn't matter what their education level was or any of that because, uh, whether they had any experience in the in the area of what we were working on, whether they had any education in um, pedagogy or or financial literacy or you know any of those things that we could, we were working on within communities they they had answers that were truly innovative and creative because they were the closest ones to the issues yeah and that was always amazing for me to see that process of discovery that for my roles it was asking those critical questions and it was helping people find that that spark that created this internal revolution for themselves to realize that they know a lot more than what they think they know, and they learn a lot. They know a lot more than what they give them such credit for, 
and that they are powerful regardless of, of how many times they might have felt powerless in their lives. Right. And so uh, that was it, it was always amazing for me to see that light bulb turn on and inside someone when they made that discovery and and change their belief about what they're capable of. Awesome. Um, I just had a question and I kind of was thinking about what you said and I kind of forgot my question. Uh, speaking of trusting processes, um, can you tell me if Plaza Mayor is a situation of trusting process gone bad? Yeah, I would say so. You know, there were promises made and there was a process agreed to on the begin at the very beginning of that project that weren't followed. Let me let me ask a broader question. For those who ne have never heard about what was going to happen to Crossroads Mall and what the goal was, and you just kind of lay out what Plaza Mayor was supposed to be. The vision for Plaza Mayor, um, well, first of all, from the owners, it was we want to make it a Hispanic. We bought a mall. We want to make it a Hispanic mall, right? In order to do that, let's hire some people or, or, or engage people who have had experience with this kind of thing, right? Um, so they reached out to me to be kind of the lead here, especially locally, on developing out a Hispanic retail, you know, a commercial center, cultural center, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, many things to the community. And I brought a vision to this uh, project of what it could be, you know, rather than just, okay, well, let's just revive a dead mall. And they said, no, let's reinvent what this property is. You know, let's create something that that is much beyond uh, thinking about purely retail or, or tenant landlord. Like, no, let's create an engine for economic development, for cultural development. Um, and, uh, you know, I had already had experience with using culture and arts as an engine for economic development with the Norman Music Festival. Mm -hmm. The Norman Music Festival completely transformed downtown Norman. You know, before the Norman Music Festival, I mean, it was just, it was a ghost town, just like Crossroads, right? Mm -hmm. When I got to Crossroads, it was only 17% occupied, right? No traffic. Um, so immediately started creating weekly programming uh, to bring people in and cultural programming. We had the mariachi play there every Sunday. We had folkloric dancing. We started, in, you know, having talent shows and dance competitions and all these sorts of things. And then, you know, I created these signature events that we would do on average every month, right, to bring in large masses of people. And so as you bring these people in around these activities, that serves as a virtual anchor because every real estate development needs an anchor, right? Something that brings in people. Uh, and the traditional malls, it used to be JCPenney's and Dillard's and Montgomery Ward's. And so people would come for these department stores. And then when they're walking between the department stores, they get to see all these other shops, inline shops, right? <clears throat> but then they also might shop there because they see that there, right? So it's like, it's a, you know, the anchors bring in the traffic and then they stay and, and consume from these other stores because they're there as well. Um, so then we treat, treated these activities as virtual anchors, right? So these bring in the people, then they see the new restaurant that opened, then they see the new snack bar, they see the new boutique, the new shop, the new, you know, 
Uh, and you're and while you're doing these activities, you're able to talk about these things that are opening and what's coming soon. And then, but but the way it was different what the, is that this model would also bring in nonprofits, the Mexican consulate, the you know the, the law firms, the you know a health clinic, eventually a school. Uh, and we were, you know, I was hoping eventually a grocery store and then, and then thinking about, okay, now how do we make this property into a livable community? Right. So my vision beyond what was, what was already going on was how do we start developing out mixed use, uh, retail and apartment, uh, you know, apartments. And so people living on, on the property and then developing the, the unused property around there. So, you know, there was this whole vision about what this could be. Uh, and along with that, the owners had promised to also make investments in that property. So the three years I was there, tremendous growth. We went from 17% occupancy to 46% occupancy. Um, a huge embracing of what this model is and could be. Uh, extreme growth in traffic, extreme growth in even just the retail sales, because we still had some national organizations in there mm -hmm. and they were seeing record sales, right? So the fact that we weren't focusing on retail, but because we were really, you know, and I say we, but, you know, I was doing a lot of this work. Um, uh, we still had that retail benefit, even though that wasn't the focus. And when you, right? when you say 17 and 46% occupancy, is that by storefront or is that by uh, square, square square footage? Square footage. So yeah, square footage, uh, uh, yeah, occupancy. That, that's impressive because you've got uh, Dillard's, Macy's, JCPenney's, those take up huge amounts of space. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have one of those full, mm -hmm. that's, you know, uh, well, probably 15% of your square footage that's not full. So yep. you pretty much had everything else packed out. Yeah, it was 1.2 million square feet wow. in the place. And so, wow. but it became increasingly um, apparent and, you know, I don't know why the, the reason and it could be, it could have been influenced by one person. It could have been the, you know, group think or whatever. The investments that were promised weren't being made. Simple things like we're going to remodel the restrooms. We're going to fix the entrances where, you know, and then the, and then the bigger things like we're going to build a performance venue. We're going to build a, a arena, you know, you know, so a lot of these promises that were, that had been made were not being followed up on. Um, we're going to create more seating for families. We're going to do, you know, um, and then other things that that were done were done at the at the minimal effort, minimal cost. So it wasn't what it could have been. You know, we built a stage in the center court. It was, you know, not exactly what we what uh, you know we had in mind. And you know, we were going to establish a, a market. You know, in Mercado, and instead of you know, the whole floor being built out, only one small portion was built out and not, not to the vision of what it was going to be. So there's just kind of this reoccurring things where, yeah, exactly. The process wasn't followed. So what happened is that it became a huge workload on me and people's belief and trust in me individually to move into the, into the commercial center, into the, into the center. And also it was, the, it was all of the early adopters, right? So where you have the these other Hispanic business owners that were keeping an eye on the project, that if they had seen these other investments happening, then they would have come in 
um, that didn't happen, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we only got the first phase of it, and yeah, really, when I saw that that the process wasn't going to going to be followed and these investments were going to be made, then I really had to do some soul searching about what you know, okay, what am I going to do, right? And so what I decided to do was approach the ownership group and say, look, this is not going the way that we had discussed it. It was going to go. We've had tremendous success up to this point because we had mm -hmm. like things were really positive. Things were growing income, you know, income was increasing. Was there a key metric set up to start, you know, our KPIs? So mm -hmm. were you just destroying those and they still weren't doing their part? Well, you know, as far as occupancy and traffic, yeah, we were destroying those. Um, as far as income per square foot, you know, we're probably still struggling there. But for me, it's still early on in the process. And like I said, since some of those other things hadn't happened, those investments hadn't happened, then your bigger rent payers were coming in. And was right? this income per square foot uh, occupied or income per square foot available? Because, I mean, one of those is going to be much better than the other one because your occupied space is... Mm -hmm. Is much smaller, not much smaller, but it's it's much more reasonable to mm -hmm. add that put that dollar. Well, and also, you know, for the early adopters, in order to incentivize them to come in, where it was dirt cheap mm -hmm. rent, right? Um, and so, so, so then the so if it was a per, per square foot rental price of the of the occupied space, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, so I said, look, guys, you know, either. Give me more autonomy on how we do you're making the investments in this project project or i'm out you know and i think they misinterpreted it that to think that i wanted to get paid more and so they offered me more money to stay commission structures and things like that and it, it wasn't what i was looking for right because i knew that if 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 no, if nothing had changed if the, if the if the initial promises and processes weren't carried out then it wasn't going to be successful. And so and paying you more per year is much cheaper than putting in an arena, putting in, you know, absolutely like building all that stuff out. So they thought maybe if we can just throw a little money at him, maybe he'll hush up about all this other stuff. Yeah, and I, and I knew it wasn't sustainable. I, there's only so much me as an individual could take that project. Mm -hmm. Right. Those investments had to happen. You know, the other the other work had to happen. And so I opted to then rather than take the increase in commissions and, and pay, uh, move over full-time into community development. Cause I really felt like that, that was, that's what I was doing there. Mm -hmm. I wasn't just a real estate developer. I was, I was doing community development because I was truly looking at what our community needed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I had an opportunity to move over into statewide community development with scissor tail. And then I just didn't look back because, um, Unfortunately, when I left there, they kind of abandoned the model, and then, and then we all know what happened after that. So, um, so it's unfortunate because I think, uh, you know, and I've said this before in other places, is that my my biggest fear came true in that people that weren't aware of what happened there might have thought that, oh well, the Hispanic community wasn't just was not, not big enough and not. I didn't have enough buying power to support a project of that size. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case. Yeah. That was not the case. If anything, we showed that the Hispanic community is more than capable of making a project like that viable. So what's your perspective on that project now? And what was it then as far as do you wear it as a loss or do you wear it as 
a badge of honor of you, you know, stuck with your integrity, tried to do the right thing, and they weren't willing to meet you halfway, so you had to separate ways. I do wear it as a loss. I, I'm, uh, I, I wish I had been more successful in that area. I did, I did learn a lot, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it was difficult to navigate because I had been used to that point being an entrepreneur. So I was, I had always been the boss, right. You know, I had always been in charge of the projects that I'd undertaken. This is one of the first times where I was actually working for somebody else. Right. And so, and where I didn't have complete autonomy over the decisions made during, for, you know, during the process. And so it was a learning experience for me. I do consider it a loss because, because of those things that I feared did come true. And the fact that what I still think is prime real estate sits there empty to this day. Um, and so, you know, I haven't really kept much tabs on it since then. Um, but, you know, hopefully something positive gets, gets made out of it. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for the fact that one of the deals that I did, uh, you know, uh, participate heavily in was, was the selling of the anchor to Santa Fe South. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited that that still persists to this day. Uh, they have thrived in that space. Uh, of course, they could have been a really great part of something much grander in that property. Um, and so we'll see what, you know, what the future holds for that. But, uh, but I'm also not afraid to lose. Mm. That's the thing. Like, I'm not one of those people that's going to be like, oh, no, that was a loss. So, you know, I, you know, I held to my integrity, my values, and, and I just walked out. Right. No, wasn't quite like that. You know, but I just I knew that the that the that the situation wasn't sustainable. You said you you wish that you had been more successful. What could you have done? I think a lot of it is um, uh, being more persuasive, um, laying out my case in a better way to the to the ownership groups. I think that they made the best decisions that they could make with the information they were being given, and so and I wasn't always a part of that process of, of the information that was given. Mm. And so uh, that's always a frustrating thing is that, that sometimes people make decisions based on the, deci- the the information that they're being given. It's not that they have any sort of negative intent, right? Yeah. Uh, I see it happen all the time. And I think it's easy and, a, and maybe sometimes a cop-out for us to say, oh, well, they're just bad people. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. It's not, you know, the vast majority of people out there are not bad people, you mm-hmm. know? Even if we don't agree with the decisions they make or the things that are going on, these are smart people that have had success in other areas. Sometimes they haven't stayed true because it's a new situation. They didn't stay true to some of the things they knew needed to happen in other places. I mean, they weren't afraid of making investments in other properties, you know? And so something here was different, right? Um, So, you know, I wasn't always in the position to be able to communicate that to them. Um, I wish I had done better with the relationships there, um, to where I was in the position to be able to give some of that information. Um, but like I said, some of it's learning experiences. I mean, you know, you know, people are, are vastly different and they come from vastly different areas. And, uh, we need to be able to learn how to understand people and how to, how to make ourselves understood. And we have to take the onus upon that when we're not understood. Right. Um, so I think because of that is why I, I say I could have done a better job, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
but I have to be able to recognize that to take it forward to say, okay, if I'm ever in these situations again, then, I, then I'm going to do a better job of this. Mm-hmm. And I did, you know? Uh, and so it was a great learning experience for me. Um, like I said, just because you lose it, that's not a negative thing. I think people are too afraid of losing or yeah. failing. I think a lot of times we call it failing, but you can't be afraid to fail because a lot of times it, it, it also keeps you from doing anything in the first place. Yeah. If you're always afraid to fail, then you're just, you're not, you're not going to try many times, you know? And I think, uh, so I, so I, I embrace that. I, you know, I'm not afraid to fail. Uh, I'm careful not to, and I'm a, I'm a good steward, especially when it comes to other people's resources, especially as I moved into the nonprofit world uh, and now into higher ed, which is, which is a government organization, a state organization. Um, I have to be very, a uh, very good steward of public resources, right? Mm-hmm. As a nonprofit, a steward of community resource donors and, and grantee, grantors, and then on the state side, a, a good steward of uh, taxpayer money, essentially, right? So those decisions have to be made with a lot of care. And, and I also have to go in and be able to analyze and say, do we need to be doing this? Do we need to be spending these dollars? Is this duplicating efforts? So it's, you know, some of these maybe things we might think of boring, but they're, but they ultimately are some of the most important work that we do uh, to be good stewards of that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it was just a learning experience, I would say. And, and uh, I think, I think for anything that we can look on where we, where we didn't get the outcome that we wanted to, we have to not be afraid of, of, of saying that we failed and, and be able to learn from that. Because if we, if it was always somebody else's fault and we're not learning anything and we're not growing. Uh, thinking of another situation that I've heard that has happened with you, you had a handshake agreement with a location that I, I'm not going to say location, not because I don't want to, out them i just i don't want to say the wrong one and be incorrect but you had decided on a price for i think it was the uh cinco de mayo we had done the cinco de mayo celebration there yeah and so we already we had already had a price okay we'd already had a price we'd already had agreement and then we were getting ready to do our fall festival there that had already been confirmed and we you know already expressed you know that we were going to do these two events there every year and there was basically a handshake agreement moving forward that this was going to be the prize for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Right. And so go ahead. Yeah. And so uh, we had our first event and it was a tremendous success. Um, 30,000 people came out to that event. Um, everybody was pleased. We had nothing but positive feedback. Uh, and it was just, a, just a continuation of the growth of these, um, of these Hispanic festivals. Um, and then, you know, we, we were kind of, we, okay, so like, we're ready to move forward. Let's lock in, let's lock in a, uh, a contract for the, for the next date and, and get moving on all that and delayed and delayed. And then when we finally met, uh, which was getting closer to the event already, then it was, it was all of these things about things that, that were went wrong at the festival, right? Oh, yeah. Which was all surprising, right? But all had no merit, mm. right? And then uh, using that as a justification to say, okay, we're going to charge this now and charge this. And and ultimately it came out to, and beyond charging all these things, we're also going to take control of your, you know, 
I know you've traditionally handled your own food at your event. We're going to handle that. I know you've traditionally handled all your concessions. We're going to handle that, right? Um, so for an event that was very successful, they they had increased our cost to be there by about 480%. Wow. So essentially pricing us out of the space. And that was really difficult because... To me, when I get again, when I get confronted about these about something that seems irrational, then it's usually something I'm not seeing beyond what's being presented as face value. Right. And so, um, so, you know, it, it came down to a conversation that said, you know, uh, hey, if if you don't want us there, just let us know, right? Because this is a completely one eighty degree turn. From where we were after our first event, right? Um, and then, uh, and then we were having these discussions and, and talking about what was fair, and, and then it was you know I guess word had gotten back that one of the things that we were trying to we we're trying to understand why these decisions were made, being made. I think in a in a in a meeting that we had, we had also said, well, is it because of what we look like? You know, I mean, that's an easy conclusion to, ju- to jump to when something like this irrational is happening. And somehow that, I think that got back to the leadership there. And then um, and then it was like, OK, well, if that's what they're thinking, then we're definitely. Which to me says that's exactly what we were thinking. And now we're going to blame them for figuring it out. I can't say for sure, you know. <laughs> Uh, because I wasn't there, but, uh, but, you know, somebody that was there related that to us. And, uh, and so when I ended up having a conversation with the leader of the organization, um, they were like, well, that's what it's going to be. And, and actually, regardless, even if you could pay this amount, right. Um, we're not going to let you do a September event. Right. And so this was already two months before the event was supposed to happen. And so it put us in a position where we were scrambling to find a different venue. And luckily we did. And it was, it was still highly successful, but, uh, it, that was, that was a challenging, challenging situation because for me, it felt like there was a small group of people or even maybe even one person that just had way too much power over public resources. Mm. Right. Uh, because it wasn't the city, you know, managing the space, you know, even though it was city property. Um, and so to me, there was something that wasn't set up right about that. And that it did seem like an abuse of power. Um, so, you know, that was difficult. Um, especially since it's, it's kind of an ideal space for, yeah. you know, what we do. Do you want to say anything more? No, it's okay. But, you know, but regardless of all that, uh, I think, you know, it's kind of cliche. People say things happen for a reason. Um, But regardless of all that, you know, uh, these festivals have been something that is treasured in our community. Um, We didn't want to sully it with, you know, some sort of public, you know, outing of people and accusations and things like that. Especially when, you know, I've lived long enough to know that, that things are complex. Yeah. Right. And things are not always what they seem or what they look like. Uh, so even though this may have looked like one thing, you know, I always have enough of a distrust of myself to say, 
if there's a possibility that it wasn't this, then I'm not going to go out there and say anything about it. Yeah. Well, 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 I agree with that part of it. I've, I've, you know, been through similar situations before. Mm-hmm. And how did you deal with? I mean, it makes you feel kind of crazy mm-hmm. whenever there's just, you know, this completely irrational thing that you're trying to figure out. You're, you know, you're talking, you're consulting with mentors and other people who are saying, "Man, this sounds pretty wonky." Mm-hmm. Like, unless there's something we're all missing, it sounds like this is because you're brown mm-hmm. and not, you can't prove it. You, I mean, these are the, the situations we're faced with often is like, this is the world we have to go out into and do mm-hmm. business. And sometimes somebody's just not willing to work with you because of how you look. Mm-hmm. How did you deal with that? Um, I deal with not taking it personally, you know, I, <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately there were other, there were two other groups that were, that also were from minority groups that had had similar experiences, right? So, I mean, if we wanted to make the case, we could have made the case, but, uh, but you know, like you said, we took the high road. I mean, it's not, it's a no skin off my back because, uh, you know, it's like, I'm going to find a solution regardless, right? And these are events that are for the community, you know? So it's not like it's something that hurts my family or anything like that because like we, we don't make any money off of these things, right? And so I didn't take it personally um, we, instead of, instead of spending our energy and trying to take down this person or this organization, um, we spent our energy in trying to make sure that there was still going to be a quality event that was available to families. Right. And so we did, and we, and it was a success. Um, you know, we barely broke even, so we didn't raise much funds for the, com- the community programs that we wanted to raise. Oh, we did a little bit better than break even, but but given the circumstance, we could have done a lot, a lot better for, for our community programs. Um, but, the, but at the very least, we didn't lose, right? And, uh, and so, and like I said, the blessing in disguise is that now these festivals have found a permanent home at OCCC, you know? And so regardless of that challenge, I don't think most people in the public have even, they didn't even knew that there was a challenge, right? Right. And so all that they all that they know is that they've been able to experience a magical event every year, right? I think I might have said this earlier, but there are kids in our community who have lived their whole lives who have always had access to this. And so as much as I can focus on that, the other stuff doesn't become as important, you know? Um, so, you know, it, it's okay, you know? I mean, that's a, it's a very, you're a very emotionally mature. Um, like, you know, I'm in, I'm almost 40 now, but I am trying to be emotionally ma- mature, but it, it is not something that comes with age. It comes with work. It comes with, you know, knowing yourself and trying to do better. And not everybody takes the time to do that. A lot of people just move through life, letting the emotional maturity be where it lays. And for you to, you know, have taken these, you know, pretty hard lumps and looked at where you could have done better is really impressive. Like, you know, I, I respect the hell out of that. I really do. Well, I can't just say I've always been, you know, very emotionally mature. I mean, I made a, I made a lot of mistakes and said a lot of things that maybe I shouldn't have said. Uh, <laughs> but I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, and I'm still learning. You know, I still make mistakes. I'm by no means uh, perfect at all. And so, but I do give myself some grace too, you know. Yeah. Uh, I know I'm not perfect. And I know I'm going to make mistakes. So I just have to be kind to myself. So kind of switching back to your role as a musician, um, you have 
your musician side and your other many hats that are service minded. Um, how does that dichotomy exist between performer, which is generally a kind of selfish thing, like the attention's on me, you know, page, like listen to me, like all that stuff versus being in so deep into service organizations and trying to give back. Like, does that ever, do you ever feel unbalanced in that? No, for me, there's no dichotomy about it. For me, for me, playing is also a service. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a community service. I mean, I, when I play, I play in service of the people that, that we're, we're performing for. I know that I represent something that's much bigger than myself. You know, none of this has ever been about fame for me or attention for me. It's really been about bringing something that's also authentic to people. Um, you know, one thing about our mariachi is that we're a very diverse mariachi, right? And so uh, we have people from all sorts of backgrounds in, in our group. And there could easily be this um, criticism from even my own community that, oh, well, they're not, you know, they're not from our country and how can they do this and whatever, like, you know, that, that's even the thing we were talking about earlier about appropriation, right? Right. Um, but if you close your eyes, we sound just as good or better than any mariachi that they would be used to, to hearing back home, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and we've been told that by the community over and over again. Right. And so it's not about us. It's not about doing what we want to do, playing our favorite songs or, or any of that. It's about, do we allow people to escape the things that they're dealing with on a daily basis? Because life is hard for everybody. Life is a struggle. You know, when you, when you have these celebrations and when you, when you hire a mariachi to come play at your house or play at, for, for this event, for that event, you want to be able to just like escape for a second, right? You want to be able to remember good times. You want to be able to remember even sad times. Um, there are people who hear the mariachi start playing and they're reminded, reminded of the loved one that they lost and they start crying, but they, but they kind of live in that moment, right? What, even though they may feel sad, there's still this, like this love that's there, mm. right? And so they're able to forget about all the other troubles that they're having, able to just have a, a, a moment of, of, of feeling of, of emotion that, um, that transports them. Mm. And so my role as a musician is to serve the community and, and, and make sure people have access to that, uh, in the same way that I do every other, every other thing that I do in my life. And in fact, I would say because I'm a mariachi, it makes me better at everything else I do because especially since I do so much work to try to improve the lives of, of my community. The fact that I'm in people's homes and even people's most important events every weekend of the year, um, I have an intimate relationship with my community that many other people do not have. Yeah. And so I know how people are living. I know what's important to them. I know what they're struggling with, uh, uh, you know, and so that helps inform all of the other work that I do. And so for me, there's not an economy, there's not a separation. Um, one thing is necessary for me to be good at, at, at the other. And it, it, it's a huge compliment, you know, uh, of the work I do. So 
from where I sit, American society kind of breeds a multitude of views on one's responsibilities to their culture. While as far as my experiences have shown me, the Latino community is, of all different backgrounds, place a high priority on improving conditions for Latinos in whatever way is available to them. Do you find that to be accurate? And why do you think it is if I'm right? I think that that's been my experience. I think that Oklahoma City is a young Latino community. Um, we've only recently grown to the size that we are. Uh, and by recently, I mean like the past 30 years, right? Um, but at the same time, I think as a community, we have been doing a really great job of lifting up and developing new leaders, right? There used to only be like a handful, but now there are many people that are representing our community in many different spaces and in a very positive way. And so to me, that, that fills me with a huge sense of optimism because there is this focus, it seems, um, of members of our community trying to have a positive impact on our community, you know? Um, so I do feel like it's all very intentional. I feel that there are many of us that are trying to build capacity in others. Um, and then trying to, trying to deliver the message within our community that we are capable of solving our issues. Mm. Right. So especially when we're looking at major problems within our community, it's looking at, okay, um, do we wait for somebody else to fix this for us? Which is probably not going to happen. Or do we take the initiative and do this ourselves, right? Um, what's stopping us from doing this? What are the obstacles? Are they real obstacles or are they imagined, right? Um, if we don't have the capability of doing some of these things, then where do we find the capability to do it? You know, um, where do we get the, the knowledge, the, the education, um, and how do we tackle these things? And then if this is the problem, then how do we, how do we slice off smaller pieces of that? How do we how do we break these off into issues and then use our relationships with other people in the community to organize around these issues, take action and try to try to fix something or try to build something, try to create a new institution. You know, we're at the point in, as a community where we're able to build our own institutions, right? Yeah. The, the festival, in a, you know, Fiesta Spartacus is coming up, you know, uh, on September 17th and it's, it in, in and of itself is, it's, if it is an institution now, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so our celebrations have become institutions. We're building our own organizations, our own nonprofit groups. Um, you know, we went through that process of community organizing a new financial institution. So now, now we're creating financial institutions where we might have better access to the tools that we need to build wealth within our community. Right. And, and so, uh, so yeah, I think there is a concerted effort, um, maybe not as organized as we would like it to be. Um, uh, and then, you know, sometimes there, there is that feeling like, okay, well, who gets credit for this and who gets credit for that and, and who's being lifted up in the community? Well, if you can put that aside, if you can put the egos aside and whether you get credit for something aside, then there's some real, really, you know, um, big things that can be done for the community, yeah. you know? 
Um, but it's also hard because, you know, and I, and me being authentic, you know, with myself too, is that if I do something, I put a lot of effort into something. I do want the credit. I wouldn't want to be recognized for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's hard when you put years of work into getting something accomplished and then people forget that you were even a part of it. Like, like all of a sudden, you know, something gets approved and then it's like, then all, then everybody jumps on that and uh jumps in at the last minute and they're like i'm you know i'm doing this and i'm, I'm involved with this and you know I'm, i made this happen well it's like well, you weren't even there in the process right well it's good to hear that you are human uh, <laughs> you you do have a little bit of weakness in you I, I definitely feel that yeah you know, i'm definitely not the first person to say look at me look at me mm -hmm. whenever i've worked on something hard mm -hmm. i want to be associated with it you know yeah. i want to as much as i want the thing to be successful more than i want to be successful yeah. I still want people to know that this is something I put a lot of time and, you know, work into. And I think that's, that's most people and the people who don't feel that way. Like I, I respect the heck out of them, but I don't really get it. <laughs> Did you ever really care if you were able to not, you know, it's kind of like raising a kid, you know, you, you put everything into it and you hope for its success more than anything else, yeah. but you still want everybody to know that's your kid because you're proud. Yeah. I think it helps inform us too, as leaders too, because then, if you know what's important to you, then it's important to other people, mm -hmm. right? So when you're in the position of power, you're in the position of leadership, then make sure that you also recognize those people that put in the work. Well, I'm going to move to a, a different section because we could talk about that all day long. Yeah. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't really get to know all, I mean, we're never going to get to know all of Robert, but there's, there's some other areas I'd like to uh, dig into a little bit. <clears throat> Um, so as I speak to Robert Ruiz, as he sits here today, would it be correct in saying that there was a time that there was a question whether or not you would still be alive to sit here today? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, maybe more than once, but, but in particular, you know, I, back in 2014, January of 2014, I was diagnosed with stage four B cancer. So it was, uh, cancer that was quite a bit advanced. It had already spread to other areas of my body. It was it had started in in my throat and then gone went to other other areas. I think uh, one of the first questions people have is like, "Oh, well, it's your throat, so it's because you were singing, right?" And it's like, "No, it had nothing to do with my singing." Um, I was told that it was a, a, a viral cancer. I, you know, it's kind of interesting, or it was called by by a virus. Um, and so uh, that was extremely i don't know if i would say humbling but it was a moment that that of course changed my life you know um really more so in putting things into perspective and really more so testing what amount of pain and discomfort i was capable of enduring right the way you're going to tell the rest of this part just a little bit like as much as you're comfortable can you describe the roller coaster of, of emotions and uncertainty from the time that you start to suspect that it might be cancer diagnosis and until remission and on to today. Mm -hmm. Um, my time at which I'm started to suspect it might be cancer and finding out it was cancer was very short, fortunately. So I had, I, I had had a lump on my throat and I was told that it was a, just a benign cyst. And in fact, I was going to be scheduled to have a, a surgery to remove the, um, uh, the cyst what they thought it was a cyst. And uh, one morning I woke up and I, I couldn't talk and I couldn't breathe right because I, I was sick. So my, my 
uh, I had swollen up even more than what I was and went to the hospital and they said, no, there's something else going on here. And so they took me over to OU Medical where they were able to do more tests and do, you know, radiated sugar tests and find out that it, that it was cancer and, uh, and that it was substantially advanced. And so, um, I had had a sizable tumor in my throat, I think, because I'm overweight that people thought, well, and I thought too, like my neck's swollen just because it's, because I'm overweight. Mm-hmm. Wasn't the case. Like, like, you know, I'm still about the same way I was before I had cancer, but my neck is completely different size than what it was back then. And so, uh, so I just didn't notice because it happened so gradually. Right. Um, and so when I found out the impact on me was was substantial in the sense of like like I said, putting my life into perspective. But I think it was probably even more emotionally damaging to my family, mm-hmm. uh, particularly to my wife, because then, you know, she also had to to think about uh, what does life look like if my husband's not here. You know, uh, what does our family look like if if my if my father's not here? You know, it's like. Uh, I think so much, so many times, like the attention is put on the person that, that has a cancer, right? But not enough times do we, do we really talk about the trauma that it, that it, it, it really puts on the whole family because at some point, every member of the family, their, the life that they knew is turned on its head. Um, they're thrown into chaos because they're trying to figure out, okay, well, what is this new world that I live in, right? I always, I always kind of come, come back to like this garden of, uh, of Eden story, right? I think, uh, that the, the story of Adam and Eve really is a story about trauma, right? And that whatever knowledge is given to us, um, that it is that knowledge that throws us into this trauma, right? And then so all of a sudden you're exiled from this place that you thought everything was okay into this world of chaos and pain, Mm. right? And so then you have to discover how to live within this new world, this new life. People call it finding a new normal, right? Right. After trauma. But to to me, it's a, it's a story of trauma, right? And so I, I, so, so I, so, you know, understanding that every member of the family goes through that and deals with it in their own way. Um, I think it's important for, for people to understand because one thing that happened when I was going through the experience is that I was very public about it and there was a lot of attention on it. And so when I spoke in public and when I was on social media, I, I always try to put as much of a positive face on it as possible. Right. But I, 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 at some point realized I was doing a disservice to people. Because there are so many were people that were struggling through cancer, and even my own struggle was much more painful than what I was letting on. Mm-hmm. And that was not a good thing, you know, because then I would hear people say there was there was a friend, a good friend of mine that got through cancer, you know, very soon after, you know, I had been diagnosed and started treatments. And um he made the comment to me, it's like, you know, well, I got throat cancer, but I know you have it too. And, you know, you're, you're good. So I'm going to be good. You know, it's like, it, it was good from the standpoint of like maybe giving people other people strength, but not from the standpoint of 
of misinforming people that it's yeah. easy, yeah. you know? And so, so because of that, me and my family made the decision to, to put out after I had gotten better and I had some time to heal the first music video project that we did was a, a music video called uh, Urge. Um, and it, it took a song that I think is generally an, an understood to be a romantic song, but really gave it a new interpretation. Um, because, you know, one of the lines of it, and, I, and I, hopefully maybe we can just put a link to it or, or I can do some translation of some lyrics. Um, but one of the lines that, of it is, uh, is that, you know, I have, you know, I'm looking for somebody to comfort me, to take away my pain, uh, to share my triumphs and my failures. Um, and ultimately it's like the, the last line of the song is that because I also have a right to live. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, like I said, I think it's usually interpreted in a, in a romantic way, but it, but it felt also very, uh, relevant to the experience that we had. And what we tried to do in the music video was show how, how that, that experience affected every member of my family and how difficult it was. Even putting me in very vulnerable places where like, I'm naked in a bathtub, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, you know, I'm not a good looking guy, you know, so it's like, you know, I'm overweight and it's like, okay, I'm going to be naked in the tub. Like who wants to see that? Hey, but, there, are, there are people, but, but, <laughs> and there, there's those out there who like us. So yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but that's what the reality of my life was at that point. Yeah. It's like, sometimes it was so painful that all I could do was crawl out of bed crawl into the bathtub, fill it with water and like, just try to make it through the day. Mm. Right. And there were times at which that I had no desire to eat. So I would be at a, at the table with my whole family and everybody's eating. And I just, I'm just sitting there with an empty plate because I don't want to eat, but I want to be with my family. Right. Right. But it's also sad. It's like, uh, and then like looking at those things that, that also gave me strength. Like there were so many people through that process that were praying for me. Um, people that had, um, giving me notes of encouragement, um, uh, you know, uh, pieces of gospel to read, like when I, when I woke up and, and so, uh, you know, I tried to reflect all that in that video and help people understand that, that my family also gave me strength, like that, even though I was suffering, that it was just painful, you know, I wasn't alone. It was, it, you know, I had a lot of people around me that were, that would help, helping me through that. Yeah. And, and like I said, I mean, for my life, it, it did change my life. And I, and I told my wife and I told a lot of people is that, um, I would never wish that on anybody, but also I, I don't regret that I went through that. Like I actually, like that's, that's something that has shaped who I am. And so I appreciate that, uh, and the perspective that it did give me because it, it's also much easier for me not to sweat the small stuff. Uh, much easier for me to forgive things. Um, much easier for me to stay focused on the things that are important um, because I, I went through that that experience. I appreciate you being able to see pretty close after the damage that could be done by being inauthentic. You know, people, a lot of people don't think of that unintended consequence of putting on a brave face is that you were giving an unrealistic example of what what going through something like that looks like. I mean, it hurts and it's different for everybody. You know, there's a variety of experiences. And for some people, it may not be that hard. They might, you know, it's like I did chemo three times. And after that, you know, it cleared up and blah, blah. It's not, it's not generally the case. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't the case, 
sharing something, you know, contrary to that is, is unfair to yourself. Because, you know, we talk about this a lot on the show is it doesn't give the people who love you a chance to be supportive in the way that they need to be. Mm-hmm. And it also is unfair to somebody else who's going through the same thing and is like, well, that's not what it's like for me. Mm-hmm. Like, is there something wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, being, being the most yourself that you can can be helpful to so many people because sometimes being strong enough to hurt and be vulnerable and share that with others gives somebody else the power to be able to push through. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I appreciate that big time. Man, big, big thoughts, big, deep thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, During those, the, the, those days where you were having, you know, the most you could do was just survive the day and things got kind of dark. What was most important to you? I mean, it's my children, you know, my children and my, my family, you know, it's, uh, I think it's always been the most important thing for me. There, there are things, uh, surprisingly enough, as hard as that was, there, there are things that happened to me that are even harder, you know, and it's always been about, um, how do I keep my children healthy? How do I make sure that our family stays a family? Um, you know, it's, it, it's those things that, that, that have always brought me back. And I understand that also in the long run, it's going to be my family that, that matters the most, regardless of what's going on in the career. Uh, I of course want to have an impact on my community. Uh, and hopefully I leave some legacies there, but first and foremost, it's my family. Is there anything that you can share that, I mean, cancer is pretty bad. Yeah. What, what was worse than that? Oh, the attempted suicide of my son. Oh, wow. Um, my son, uh, you know, it, it, the one thing about cancer is like when it's something that's happening to you and that you had no control over, it's easier to accept, right? Regardless of how bad it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, w- I was I was okay. Like if, if cancer took me, I was fine. I worked, I, you know, I lived a life that I was proud of. I tried to do as, as good as I can could. Uh, tried to be, uh, you know, the best, you know, father that I could be. Um, but it's when things that happen to you that are out of your control. Um, that I feel many times are much more painful. You know, my son had had delayed development when he was very young because he had had basically a chronic three year ear infection that we didn't know anything about because he didn't show any symptoms of it. Right. And so what happened is that, so he wasn't able to hear very well for the first three years of his life. So then he had delayed development on language, right? Uh, plus with that, I, you know, he, he was kind of on the, on the edge of the spectrum for autism. And so because of that, he was picked on a lot in school, you know? Um, and oftentimes uh, teachers wouldn't see the other kids that were picking on him. They would see his reaction to it. Right. And so he was often in a position where he felt like he was being treated unfairly, but he didn't, he couldn't communicate it. And it built such a huge anxiety that there were times in the elementary school where he would just run out of the school. Like, like he couldn't physically be in that situation anymore. And he ran out of the school and there was a lack of understanding from the administration about what was going on and what was happening. Right. And so my wife and I were brought in 
And, you know, we were kind of reprimanded for his behavior, mm-hmm. right? And I had to let them know that th- this isn't behavior that he has at home. You know, he he is a loving, you know, well-behaved child at home. That there's something happening here that is making these things happen, right? Um, we were very blessed that, you know, that he was later able to find a, an advocate for him at school um, that he could trust and, 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 and be able to still make it right. So this school was a great school for my other three daughters, but he had difficulties and he carried that with him. Right. Middle school was very difficult for him. Um, you know, he would often times just try to melt into the background and, and, and fly under the radar and kind of be lost in some, some sense. And, uh, he wouldn't advocate for himself. He wouldn't, you know, do any of those things, but his anxiety was still there about going to school and doing those things until, uh, until there was a day in, in his freshman year that, um, he didn't want to be there. And in order to not be there, he took pills to not be there. And so, you know, there was nothing like having to carry my son's limp body into the car to take him to the hospital. You know, um, the thing that that um, helped me through it um, uh, was that when he went to the hospital and he finally, you know, gained regained consciousness, you know, they pumped his stomach, um, and uh, he said that he wanted to see me because. You know, just talking about the people that he trusted, you know, and uh, and so, you know, I was able to see my son and, um, uh, and and unfortunately, you know, because of the attempt, he was taken away from us, you know, so he was put in, in acute care. And that was extremely hard on me, and especially on my wife, mm-hmm. right, because we had no control over that either. Was, that, was he put on a seventy-hour hold or how? Yeah, um, yeah. So basically, like a suicide watch, acute acute care into a residential facility, mm-hmm. and so it, and it, I mean, I, I'm, my heart goes out to all the families that have ever had to deal with this because it's literally like you know he's being ripped out of our arms, mm-hmm. right? Um, when we felt like he needed us the most, but at the same time, I understand that it's also for his safety and and those sort of things and. And, um, you know, it was a struggle just to think, just to try to figure out, okay, how do, how do we move forward from here? How do we make sure that he's safe? How do we make sure that he's thriving and feels loved and, and those sorts of things? And so, you know, it, it's still, it's still a struggle, but he, you know, he's been thriving. He's actually going to school at OCCC now. So I'm with him every day. Um, you know, he's in college now. He's been accepted in, into the engineering program at OU. Um, but he still struggles with things, you know, and, 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 um, you know, just making, just taking care of himself and, 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 and those sort of things. And so it's like, um, uh, you know, we're, we're so grateful that he's still here with us first off. Right. Um, and then it's, and then for me and my wife, it's always, you know, how do we best support him to make sure that he's happy and that he finds purpose in life and that, um, and that he can thrive in whatever way that he that he needs to thrive, you know. And so, 
that, I mean, that experience was way more painful yeah. than cancer, you know? Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, it, yeah, I mean, and, and so many people have to deal with those kinds of situations and, um, which is also made me very empathetic and, 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 and want to serve the community in, in, in much better way because I know that these, that these struggles exist for many families. And I always think about the struggles that I face and I'm, and I'm a well-educated person and I have resources, even though it wasn't always that way. I mean, we did live in poverty. I mean, we, at one point where our family was homeless, but, but we, we worked out of those things and we did, you know, um, uh, we were able to build careers in which we were able to thrive. And, and so I have resources, but there are so many people in our community that don't have resources and they're dealing with the same kinds of struggles. And it's like, uh, you know, how, how do you, uh, you know, what can I do then to try to make, you know, to try to make their lives easier, um, understanding the situations that they may be in because I've gone through the same sorts of situations, but I have the power to help them. Yeah. Um, I'll definitely thank you for sharing that. For one, um, I will tell you that on this show, we are huge um, advocates for neurodivergence. Like I said, I'm ADHD. Um, my last guest, who's one of my, one of my best friends has a son who's, you know, on the spectrum and it's something that's very important to me. So I appreciate you sharing that story for one, because I know that that it's, it's hard to talk about. It was hard for me to hear because I have a son whom I love very much. And, you know, that, that's a, that's a really tough thing to even imagine. So actually living through it, um, you did. And that's, that's an important part of that story is that everybody lived through it and that's, Beautiful, but um, I'll drop a link on autism awareness on this show notes. And also, if you know anybody who's being bullied and needs help, also a link. I drop a link about that because bullying. We've learned so much more about the long-term effects of bullying. Like it may not be today or tomorrow that somebody tries to end their life because they've been bullied. It it might be years down the road. And if we can get those people help while while it's still early, maybe maybe something better can happen for them. And, uh, man, that's, <clears throat> that is definitely, you've definitely been through some stuff. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, but, but, uh, you know, uh, I laughed only because, because I do, I do understand that, that there are so many other people who have gone, who have gone through these things as well. So I know my, I know my, my experience, even though painful and, uh, you know, there, there, there are other things too, but it, but people have all, uh, there's so many people who have had difficult lives. I'm, I'm very grateful that I had a, a, a very uh, blessed childhood, you know, and I, I know that there are so many other people that, uh, that have had very challenging childhoods. Um, and, and so they're, they're, you know, everybody's either been through something or is going through something. And, uh, I think the more that we can be conscious of that, I think the, the kinder we can be with other people as well. Because I think it's really easy for us to judge people, uh, for us to make people the villains in our stories. And, you know, it's like everybody's a villain in somebody's story, right? And so it's like, you know, it's, it's understanding that everybody's going through something. Yeah. And as kind as you can be with other people, regardless of what's happening, regardless of what they may even be doing to you, it's like, uh uh, you know, there are very, very few people who, who are, are, you know, malicious in this world. I mean, they exist. 
Yeah. I won't say that they don't exist, right? I'm I'm not uh, naive. Right. Um, but the vast majority of people that maybe we have personal issues with are not those uh, malicious people, right? Uh, oftentimes, it's, it's really unfortunate situations. It's unfortunate turns in relationships. Um, but as much as we can lead with kindness, then we can, right? Um, if it's a situation that is becoming too costly for us, then we also have to take care of our health too. So a, a question that popped in my head is a big part of authenticity to me is self-awareness in one hand, but I immediately start to think if that were my son in that situation, how hard I would be on myself. Like knowing what I know now, I would try not to do that. I would try not to question what I did wrong, how I could have stopped this. Were you able to be kind to yourself in that situation and give yourself grace, or was that something you struggled with? No, I, I think my I think my son made it easier for me, and my son made it easier for my wife uh, because he was able to express how much he loves and trusts us. Mm-hmm. And so, and I know that's not always the case. Yeah. You know, I think from that I think from that sense we got off easy, right? Um, but but I definitely have had other situations, very traumatic situations in my life. Is that that I caused this? Was this my fault? It was my fault. You know uh, how horrible of a person I am, or you know, or whatever you know it, it may be. And there, yeah, I, I, there are situations where it's been very difficult for me not to blame myself or to be um, kind kind to myself. You know, um, so. But but I, like I said, my, my son made it very easy for us um, in that sense because because he did reinforce how much he loved us and how much he trusted us, and so um, so then it was just it was really more of a struggle of how do we support him to thrive? You know, um, we're still working through it. Yeah. You know, um, he had, has some had some successes and still has challenges, and but we're there for him every day, and you know that's all we can do. And that's that's amazing. Um, I, yeah, you keep uh, you keep knocking me off my you know off my feet with these you know the the honesty, and that actually made me think. So I mean, we both come from cultures which traditionally being vulnerable is not considered manly. You know the the Latin stereotype of you know machismo and you know being very manly, and it's very similar in Black culture that men don't talk about feelings we don't you know this is something that as a as a culture for my generation we're starting to grow out of but it's still pervasive how like how do you balance those two things like who who everybody expects you to be and who you know you need to be to be the best version of yourself for you and your family oh man that's a hard question you know I think for me, it was maybe it's been a long, long term evolution, you know, um, because it wasn't always the case. And a lot of the time, those feelings of machismo and, and, and those things come from a sense of insecurity as well. But it's like always putting on this this face or this facade um, and being afraid to deal with with feelings. Right. Um, and. In, in a sense, it's a, it is a term, a, a, a type of escapism, right? Because you're, you're, you are pretending to be something you're not. So you're, you are avoiding that authenticity, right? Um, 
I think once we start admitting that we are that we have pain, it means we have to deal with the pain. Mm-hmm. So it's often easier for us to say that we have no pain and pretend like it's not there uh, in order to cope with it. So it's understanding how do we build the tools to to deal with that pain in a healthier way. And how do we get past the stigma of being able to seek help? Mm -hmm. Going to speak to a therapist if we need to, going to speak to uh, a trusted family member, a uh, a religious leader, whoever that person is that you need to ask for help from to cope with the pain that you're experiencing. Um, it's not an admission of weakness. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I think it takes strength and courage to seek help. I think it takes strength and courage to admit when you're experiencing pain. Um, if you can't talk about your pain with your partner, it's also very difficult because you're almost dooming your relationship because you're not sharing your authentic self with the person who has the most influence on your happiness in your life. More than anything, who you choose to spend the rest of your life with is the person that's going to determine really that, that happiness for the rest of your life. And, um, and I say that not in the sense of like they're responsible for your happiness because they're not, but, but all, but the, the, the health of that relationship and your ability to be able to communicate with your partner and to be able to share pain and work through challenges is going to be extremely important for how, how you live the rest of your life. And so being able to get out of that space of machismo or, or manliness and, and, uh, and into a space of vulnerability, uh, like I said, I think it, it takes a lot more strength. And, and as far as how I got there, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm still trying to get there. Right. Uh, it's a work in progress. Um, I still don't know exactly how to deal with, with all the pain that I have. Right. But uh, I think I'm doing okay. I'm functional at least, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, but I think that's a lot of people, you know, I think a lot of us are, are dealing with things that nobody knows about and that, you know, we're trying to find the best way to cope and, and to deal. And uh, as much as we can find healthy ways to do that rather than unhealthy ways, uh, I think is, is good. Um, and then when we can find healthy ways of dealing with that, then we need to seek help. We have to seek help absolutely. Uh, for us and for the people that we care about. Absolutely. Um, as I start to round this thing out to a close, it's been a fantastic conversation. I could really keep it going, but I want to respect your time and the time of our audience. So is there anything I didn't ask you about today or any clarifying remarks about anything that we talked about or anything that's not on your bio that you'd want to share and talk about? Oh, um, I don't know. I'm sure that we could have, I, I really enjoyed today's conversation. I'm sure we could um, definitely try to get back together maybe in a year or so and, and <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> reflect on some other topics, but uh, not that I can think of right now, but um but just thank you for for uh, inviting me to come do this, oh, and, and congratulations on on uh, your podcast and the conversations that you're having. And thank you so much. Um, and uh, and yeah, um, thank you for having me. All right, Robert. If, if first, let's ask what is what does the future look like for you? Do you have any short term, long term projects you're working on that you want to share? Well, I'm trying to continue to keep keep some of these things going. You know, it's it's funny when we talk about these things being institutions, but but 
uh, the amount of work that it comes into maintaining them is they don't just happen, right? So Fiesta's podcast is coming up on September 17th at ILCCC. Um, you know, a big part of our mission, our mission is student success and community enrichment. And so, uh, you know, I take that, that community enrichment part, uh, well, both parts very seriously, but this is one of those efforts to make sure the community understands that OCCC is, is their community college, uh, and that it's a home for the community. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I'd really love to see, see people out at the festival. Um, you know, we, the, uh, there are two other events in the Hispanic Heritage Festival series, which are the Mariachi Festival that we do every other year, which next year will be one of those, uh, next January, February, and then Oklahoma City Cinco de Mayo. Mm -hmm. You know, we just met with the consulate today. Uh, the consulate is another project that I work extremely hard on. This is one of the ones that is like, you work like 10 years on a project and then it happens and then everybody else tries to take credit for it, right? It's cool because it was it was a big a, a big effort on a lot of people. It started. was another thing that was on my list that I wanted to get to today. But yeah, it's like there's no, so much we'll, we'll talk about so it much meat on this bone. <laughs> but I'm real excited about what that partnership may be for the community. Um, our new consul general, uh, Consul Pineda, will be doing the ceremony of El Grito at Fiesta Podcast, so that's going to be really special. Uh, we want to bring up more delegates from Mexico to be able to come be a part of the Cinco de Mayo festival and some of these other other efforts. And uh, no, I just really want to want to make sure people have the opportunity to enjoy these things that uh, we've been building over these times and experience an authentic experience, right? Uh, uh, and uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, uh, so many exciting things going on at OCCC too. Uh, many new initiatives. Um, you know, we're we're almost you know at the point of being designated an Hispanic serving institution. Uh, because we're at about 22.5% Hispanic, but wow. once we get to 25%, we'll be a, a designated as a Hispanic serving institution. So that'll mean more resources for all of our students, right? Um, and then, and then, you know, just uh, looking ways to, to continue to stay engaged and continue to help the community. So very cool. And unfortunately, this episode will not be out before because the transit will be out probably in late October. Okay. I've got quite a few episodes uh, in the can already, but this has been a very good one. And I, and, um, and I will share all your stuff about Fiestas Petraeus and anything else you've got coming up because um, I really do understand how important it is, the work that you're doing. Um, so where do, you, where do you live online? Where can people find out more about what you're working on? If they want to find out more about Robert Reeves, where should they go? Mostly just on Facebook. I mean, I'm kind of old school, I guess. Facebook's kind of old school at this yeah. time. Um, but yeah, you just follow me on Facebook. Uh, you know, I do have an Instagram account that I think is just fed from Facebook, but and a very, very inactive Twitter account. So, uh, but that's mostly where people can find me online. And then, and then of course, uh, follow OCCC as well. OCCC, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, you know, uh, YouTube, you know. Um, so that, that's, that'll be also a great place to keep track of, of the work that I'm doing. So, All right. Well, Thank you very much for being so open and honest. It was a truly an amazing conversation. And to our audience, if you enjoyed today's episode, please give it a follow and a like and share it with someone you think might enjoy it too. Also, check out earlier episodes and support the future creation of great content. Don't forget to go over to at Authentic Identity Management on Instagram, Facebook, Threads, or LinkedIn. And um, we're also on YouTube at Authentic Bruce. YouTube channel for podcast video and bonus content and impactful clips from my conversations with all these great guests. Robert, thank you again for being yourself and sharing so honestly and vulnerably with the Authentic On Air audience. And finally, 
If you are struggling to show up as yourself in your content, your work, your family, or your life, I would love to help you. Authentic Identity Management does identity coaching to help you align yourself with the identity you share with the world. It's exhausting to live someone else's life. Live authentically and access the potential that belongs only to you. You can contact me on social or email at bruce at authenticidentitymanagement.com and we can set up a free 30-minute discovery call. Um, Thanks again to our guests and to our audience out there. I love all of you guys. And I ask you, please be yourself and love yourself. Bye, everybody.